one day, I was at a gas station near where I live. And I looked across the street, and there's a funeral home there. And I asked the question I've always asked myself, what do you do in there? It caught me that day. What do you do, and how do you do it? I said, you know, I've always been interested in the Egyptians, which by the way, the Egyptian embalmers usually made one incision down the side. And if you were an embalmer and I'm your son, I'm an embalmer. My son becomes an embalmer and it gets passed down. But during the days of the Egyptians, if the embalmer made a mistake, do you know what the penalty was? Death. You made that incision wrong, you died. So, always had a fascination with that. I was in the embalming room the following week and I learned real quick what we do. You're listening to Love and Radio. I'm Nicholas Vanderkolk. Today's episode, Calling Hours, featuring Graham Putnam and Mahoney Funeral Parlors. Should I, should I leave the room? Yeah. Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Good when I was in grammar school, probably 10, 11 years old, a friend of mine came and said, let's go get an ice cream. And I said, nah, I'm going to go visit my 10-year-old girlfriend. So he went his way, I went my way. But he cut through an alley and part of a skylight slipped off a building, landed him and killed him. Two days later, they brought the whole school out to the sidewalk so we could watch a little white hearse go by with his casket in it. So we did that. The ironic part was the guy driving that hearse is a guy who worked with 10 years later and the funeral that handled that funeral is the one I eventually bought. Grandma, fuel parlors? Yes. Yes, it is. But the reputation has always been we don't leave anybody. Yes. 
don't leave anybody. We take, we've never turned anybody down. And I take a lot of pride in that statement because nobody else can make that statement. But I can make it with total credibility. Never tell anybody no. Never. Peter's a fuck guy, dude. <laughs> Peter's a fuck guy. He uh, he cares. He cares. He's good to everybody. He's good to the people. Knock on the door. Need something. Doesn't care. Make sure they got it. He likes to help out everybody. He's not really thinking about himself. A family, you know, loses a child, and they don't have much income, and he decides to pay for the whole the whole service, whole service, just because. He doesn't have to do that. Peter's one of a kind. <laughs> Peter's one of a kind. How can you not? Can you not like him? That is Worcester's crickets that you're hearing. You will not hear a cricket in a city, but you will hear sirens constantly. <laughs> Once in a while, gunshot. This is the chapel. This is where we give comfort. This is where we give hope. This is where the casket is placed. This is the kneeler. I'll give you a visual. That's the way it goes, and she would be in a casket. Um, this is where spirituality is. That's why we use the pink lights. When you put pink lights on a dead body, it gives the body warmth, like it's warm. You want to create something that's natural and at peace. You see, sometimes... We become optical illusionists. We can help people not to see things that are right in front of them. We create optical illusions. In this room, it's not where I try to convince them death is a good thing. Here, in this room, we try to give them hope that there's something beyond here something better beyond here. Here, we're so non-denomination, we see everybody. The, <coughs> the Asians mostly believe in cremation, and they believe in putting the ashes into like a temple. The Africans believe in sending the people back to Africa. And you have the Muslims, they tend to bury people in a shroud with no casket. I deal with Catholics, everything's sealed. Well, what have happened to ashes to ashes and dust to dust? But those are the different groups you see, different customs. Everything we haven't seen here is a Martian. When a Martian crashes at Worcester Airport, they'll call us for him too. Probably will. And you take it too. The way I look at it is if I haven't seen it, it hasn't happened yet. That's the way I sum it up. I had a, a funeral for nudists. And they wanted to have the wake, and they wanted to dress in their normal dress, which to me was nothing. I said, okay, you can do whatever you want. I'll be upstairs. Was it an open casket? Oh, yeah. 
And so the body was nude as well? Well, no, some partial clothing. Partial clothing, yeah. okay. This is what they wanted. So what the hell, I accommodated, it was no big deal. At eight o'clock, I hear the horns blowing, the lights flashing. I look out the window, I said, what all this? So I walk downstairs, there's two of them out in their birthday suits on the porch having a cigarette with the lights on. <laughs> you wouldn't believe half the stuff. And some of the story, <laughs> well, yeah, it was true. They're out there with their birthday suits, and the neighborhood went crazy. What the hell is this, you know? But nothing surprises me anymore. Some of the things I've seen. I mean, if you don't have the stomach for it, I, I, I don't think. If you don't have the nose for it, I don't think you should be doing it, you know? What, what made you realize you had the stomach for it? There was this one uh, person, the deceased, that we had to pick up at his house. Nobody knew that he was dead. He was dead for like two or three days. He died on the toilet, taking a crap. His face was up against the wall. We had to like take him off, wrap him up in a sheet, put him on the portable stretcher. But like that process, you just, you see like, the body goes through like a couple stages of decomposing. And since he's been there for like two or three days, it was already almost gone. Like his body, he had blisters everywhere. He had skin slip. Uh, it was just, a, it was disgusting. I know if I could see that, I could handle a lot. You know, like I could deal with a lot, you know. So can you tell me where what we're doing right now? Uh, we're actually going on a removal, uh, basically. Somebody passed away uh, at our home. So we're on our way to go pick up the deceased. Is this the uh, is this the first removal for for today? Yes. Yeah. My first first pickup was a nine year old girl. She died from cancer. I have kids, so like to see that kind of broke my heart, you know, because she had uh, she had come from Mexico to the United States to get better treatment for the cancer, and she ended up passing away at nine years old. So I still have her obituary and everything. That kind of just pushed me. This is what I gotta dedicate myself to, you know. I want to help any way possible and I've always wanted to help people I just never pictured myself helping in this way sweating my balls off too <laughs> so how, how did it go inside? Um, pretty smooth. Let them say their last goodbyes. Yeah. It gets tough sometimes. You just have to be patient with the families, you know, they just lost somebody. You can't rush them. Especially when they're choking up and they're crying and they're, they're hugging the body. Uh, it's just tough for, to see the body leave. It, it hits you. 
when they're speaking their love for the deceased, the way they speak about that love, so you, you do feel it. People say, oh, you know, that job must be like very sad, depressing. It's like, uh, it, it can be, but I do like it here because uh, it's reputation. A lot of families are not financially capable of spending top dollar for a funeral. And um, we're the most affordable in, in this area. The comfort that you bring to people at their lowest is what I like the most about this business. See those toes? Those little pretty toes. Always want to tag them. One thing you don't want to do is mix up that bodies. The amount of bodies that we go through in this building. Yep. As Gladstone said, the former prime minister of England there, show me the man which your community buries its dead and I'll show you the character of the community. Like anything, either you do the job and you bury the dead or you don't. You pick and choose. I remember during the AIDS epidemic, nobody would take those people. It was horrendous. The people that had HIV were shunned. Don't go near them. And so what was what was your role in, in this? Like, I mean, were there I took most people? of the people. Nobody would take them. So most of you were on part would have refused to. Nobody would take them at all. I remember going into a restaurant one time to order some uh, some takeout for the guys here. And the woman recognized very what I do and where I came from. When I gave her the money, she took it with a napkin and she washed the money with hot water and soap after I gave it to her. That's how bad it was. We found it was easy to, to handle as long as you waited enough time, enough disinfectants, it was, it was safe. Disinfectant was just plain Clorox you know, bleach. Clorox bleach. So we took them. The old timers, we never used gloves or anything else. Didn't have to. No. Then you have a cigar while you're at it, too, you know? Yeah, the old timers put <laughs> something else. Oh, this is the left, so I'll show you. If you could just both come on. Um, no, my body's right here. Okay. Watch yourself. She's going to open this. Okay, this is how stand we... back. This is how we bring them up. It's like a big trap door in the floor of this yeah. room. You see, so the body comes up to us, we roll it in there, we close the door back down again. Okay. Yeah. Back down, sweetie. We're looking at a room that's about 12 feet by 18 feet. It's white. When you come in the door, there are a series of shelves on the right that contain all of our personal protective equipment. Right now, with the coronavirus going, PPE is an absolute must. Could you briefly describe the bodies that are in here or what stage in the process they are? This one's embalmed. That one is not. That one is. Uh, I can tell by the firmness of the body a body that's embalmed will become hardened. That's how I can tell. And over here, we come into our instruments. These different things do different things. This is 
an aneurysm needle. They're used to suture the mouth shut. The mouth is the first thing people look at. When they walk into a funeral home, if that mouth isn't right, they're gonna pick up on it just like that. This is the embalming machine. It sounds like this. We can adjust it to whatever flow we want. Now, people think that we drain the blood. We do not drain blood. We displace the blood with fluid. The fluid gets put in through the arterial system. Blood and formaldehyde will come out of the venous system. And then after that, we suture them up. I got the call because I handle quite a few of the Muslim funerals in the state. They came to me and said, can you handle this? The uncle came to me and said, yeah, we can do this. Did you have any qualms about saying yes? Oh, no, I'd do it again if I had to because I buried the dead here. I don't, I don't pick and choose. Good afternoon, I'm George Stephanopoulos in New York. We're interrupting your program because there have been two explosions today at the Boston Marathon. Two explosions near the finish line just a short while Boston police officials say they've killed one of the two suspects in the Boston Marathon bombings following a car chase that began. Well, a lot of anger in this city tonight after the funeral director at the home behind me decides to accept the body of the man police call bomber number one. I had protesters here all night and all day long seven days a week. This is the biggest story for the whole year. The crowd chanted USA and sent him back, outraged after a Worcester funeral home accepted the body of Tamerlan Tsarnaev, transferred early Friday morning. All eyes were on this funeral home. Everybody was. Worcester is pretty upset about this. I mean, Boston didn't want him. Why did he come here? A standard autopsy consists of, number one, a toxicology test. The next thing they do is they, they slice the skull. They make an incision, they peel back the skin so it covers the face. It's really an eerie looking thing. Then they take the saw and they're able to remove the brain. They make an incision down here from the collarbone left, collarbone right, they cut through it. They meet here in the center of the chest, and then they go all the way down to the belly button or sometimes down into the uh, crotch area. They open the ribs up, and they remove all the organs. And they look inside at the organs to see what might have gone wrong. That's a standard posted case. But on this guy... Not only did they make those incisions, in the front, they cut him from the front of his legs all the way down to his ankles. His arms, the front of his arms down to his wrists, and then they turned him over. They made the Y cut in the back and came right down the spine. They then went horizontal along the waistline and cut right through the buttocks all the way down to the Achilles tendon. That's what I got. That's how it came to me. I asked the uncle, I said, Rosalind, you have every right to see your loved one. 
But let me warn you, what you're going to see in there, you've never seen anything like this. It's up to you. He said, I have to. Now, he grew up in Chechnya, and he has seen some severe violence done. He's seen some bad stuff. He stepped into the prep room and then stepped back, and he said, how are you going to do this? I said, well, with a little help from God, I'll get it done. Six hours later, I was on my knees in pain, suturing him up. The final equation, 3,500 sutures to put him back together again. When the uncle came into the room afterwards, he said, how did you do it? I said, that's my job. As a matter of fact, he could have an open casket. But now you can wash the body because before it was, you couldn't, you just couldn't. It was, it was horrible. I, and now in the Muslim religious tradition, the belief is that the soul is trapped in the head and it cannot leave unless all of the rituals have been done. You know, uh, the washing of the body, this, that, and the other thing. So I was in the room with the body by myself. And it's before I did anything, I said, dude, what were you thinking? Did you really think that you could do that? And I said, so tell me something. If the belief is that your soul is in there, then you can hear me. Did you ever think that it would be a Christian that would be putting you back together again? Did you think that? Why did you do this? Now look at you. Are you a martyr? And if you're a martyr, tell me about those virgins. Yes. Yes, I do. I'm so tired. They got me this is the guy that has, has taught me everything. This, yeah, yes, Dr. Lomo Smith has taught me everything that I know, and he's made me amazing in this field. This lady, when she <laughs> first came in, I could see the potential. She's one of the best. He made it so easy for me to learn. Like, I, I do have difficulty, you know, memorizing things, and... um. It was with him, it was repetition, repetition. I mean, every instrument. I mean, down he down to a T, he taught me. And I, I remembered everything. 
I would go home, like I would even start suturing a banana. I would slice a banana in half and take a needle and I would suture it and do a baseball stitch through the banana. And he would tell me like, could you just stop? Just stop. You'll be in tomorrow. And I'm like, no, but I have to master this. So. Did you play the soundtrack of when Paul was in the prep room and the body fell? Oh my God. Did I play this, that for you at home? When he dropped the body? This I, I think I played it for Melinda. He's, like he's older. He's, he was working. I, I like think he might be in I think he can pick now. it up. He, like he, he dropped, he dropped the out. body. You <laughs> found it? I love every part of it. I love the people that I work with. I love the atmosphere. It's more of like a family type of unit. Everybody gets along, everybody respects each other, you know, and if, and if like I said to them, if I die, <laughs> do not let any other funeral home take me. You know what I mean? Please put a modesty cloth over me, okay? Um, but I, I know that if that ever happened, you know, for me, if anything happened to me, I know that I would be in the best care here. And even if I lost a family member, I mean, we're, I'm not from Worcester, and I would bring my family here. I totally would. I trust every single one of the people that I work with here um, that if I, you know, if I lost a loved one, that they would do the right thing. So... Oh, how are you doing? Ah, every day just facing the bigger problems that are coming up again that we just went through. These bodies are pounding up between when I left and right. Me, I, I offered many times to solve the problem and still have offered. But they still go back and forth blaming. I, said, I don't care who you blame. Blame me all you want. You already have. Who cares? What, what is the situation with this with un, unclaimed bodies in Massachusetts? Like, how did that? Why is that a problem? Here? Yeah, well, I think uh, I think it's a problem not only here, but I think in a lot of a lot of states. You know, obviously, money is always tight in states, and there's not always a ton of money afforded to bury the poor. So a lot of the time, it falls on society to try to take care of burying those people. Two thirty-three area, along with fire and EMS. Uh, friends call, they were doing a welfare check on the resident here, and it's going to be a 603. Police are called, and they come to a house, and they find someone. Uh, paramedic confirming 603. Are you safe here, too? And there's nobody immediately apparent that's going to make arrangements for that person. We're a little unsure of who it is. We have no known next again. Can you call whatever local funeral uh, company that you can get to come and collect this person? They call around to different funeral homes, and the fact of the matter is, a lot of the times they say no. They say we can't, we can't accommodate that that body. Do we have a funeral home yet? Still trying. You know, there's no law in the books that says you know a licensed funeral director, if called, you know, has to come and pick someone up that's passed away. Called four so far. They all said no. Okay.
So Peter has kind of taken upon himself to be that person who kind of goes and takes people first and kind of asks questions later. Wait, what happens in someone's life where they get to the point where they die and no one, no one gives a shit about their body anymore, you know? can be anything sometimes. Yeah. People become drinkers and lose everything. I've dealt with accountants, insurance people, bankers in the shelter. The booze took over or the drugs took over on them. Died penniless. But the, not just penniless, but the, to not have any family members. Who come well, they have them. a lot of family, but they're afraid to come forth. They don't have the money to do anything. Peter has argued that there is uh, not enough money afforded to burying the poor here. The public assistance in this state for funerals, $1,100. They haven't changed it for 36 and a half years. That's worse than insulting. They don't seem to care about it. The cost of burial is now more than that $1,100 you're going to get. You know, you're not going to be making money. You're probably going to be losing money if you're going to bury somebody. So it's a difficult thing for many funeral directors to take on. Who among us would want to provide a service and incur a cost if you're not even sure if you're going to get paid for it? Most of the funeral homes don't deal with this problem. They don't deal with this type of situation. I deal with it every day. But do they understand it? I'm sure they do. Do they get involved in it? No. I'm not going to leave the people. I wouldn't do that. I don't know how much you're focusing on the um, the deteriorating bodies uh, aspect. Yeah, I definitely want to touch on. Okay, all right. <laughs> so, so I think that uh, you know the problem is 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 severe enough that there are hospitals that have bodies sitting in their morgues for over a year now, and you know they do have a refrigerator, but obviously over time bodies deteriorate even if if they are refrigerated. So these are the kind of cases he's getting. He's getting bodies that are already you know, unfortunately have deteriorated because no one else has been willing to bury them. So what he did was he petitioned the legislature to say, can you let me cremate these people? Um, what happened is... And, and his incentive for doing that is just cremation is just a lot cheaper. Right. So what happened was they approved this law and he brought that to the city board of health. They approved it. Okay, we're going to start doing this. Uh, you know, Peter was there and he said, this is great. He held up a little blue form. He said, okay, so here's what we're going to do. You know, here's what I think we should do. This is the cremation form. You know, you, maybe you can tweak it a little bit, but you can just kind of scratch this out and write this here and you can start signing these things, you know, immediately. And, and the city of Worcester, said, you know, the board of health agent said, well, hold on a minute. You know, we need to have our legal department create their own form. They want to take a look at this. So don't do anything yet. You know, she said that to, she did say that to Peter. She said that to the hospital. You know, don't do anything yet. We need to vet this and, you know, kind of we'll get back to you when everything is good to go. He anticipated a quick turnaround there and then accepted some bodies that had been at a local morgue at a local hospital for more than a year. Some bodies there that were dripping body fluids that had been in three bags, triple bag to try and contain the problem. So assuming they were going to move quickly, we went and picked up a couple more. Okay, how long could it really take for them to do this form? You know, the law's there, it's been passed, it's approved. You know, they're going to do it soon. That is not what happened. A couple of weeks went by. Weeks passed, and he didn't hear anything, and... Nothing. You know, as he tells it, uh, you know, he kept asking them, and... Comes June. Well, we're having legal look at it, we're having legal look at it. Comes July. And the time continued to pass, and obviously the situation deteriorated from there, and uh, it was found that he that he had, yeah, literally deteriorated. And still they dragged their toes. He calls and self-reports, apparently, that he's got odors and that he's got bugs. Then, of course, we had a bad problem. Contained it as best we could. The fire department got a complaint that there was a smell coming from the home, and apparently they went there and they were just floored by what they smelled, what they saw, you know, they were, um, the bodies were in a 
Several of them were in gelatinous states, and there were flies and maggots. And where they were kept was a room where I believe there was a air conditioner that had been set up in a small room. But when they tested it, they got a reading of, I believe it was like 60 degrees or more than 60 degrees. And that's when the regulatory process kind of started. An investigation found the improper storage of decomposing bodies. Under investigation for the bodies it was keeping in the basement. This funeral director admits the situation did get away from him, but he says his heart was in the right place. I mean, could, could you smell the bodies when they were... Oh, the sure, it was bad. Yeah. Couldn't help it. Downstairs to go downstairs to the basement. Potato room. Potato room? Yeah. <laughs> why is that? Uh, why is it the potato room called the potato room? Um, we called it the potato room because when we had those abandoned bodies, that's why we had them. Mm. And that room stink. Think of it of a room full of rotten potatoes. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay, gross. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we gave it the name Potato Room. Just the stench was... Like, if you was to come down here for the first time, you, you, you'll probably, like, get the urge to throw up. Yep. Mm -hmm. It was that bad. Yeah. Glad that's over. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. We're still here because we didn't do anything. Never received a penalty or a fine. Nothing. You know, the fact that the state's discipline ultimately ended up in him receiving his license without any restrictions on what he can do other than that he has to have a monitor. You know, I think that right there kind of shows you that if you had a thriving network of people that were doing this, I think you would have uh, perhaps a more heavy-handed penalty if that person was not an important player when it came to helping take care of people that, that don't have anywhere else to go. There was nothing, you know, physically stopping you from burying the bodies. I no. Then why what kept you from, from Why bother getting the bill passed and sitting around waiting each week when they said they were going to do it, they were going to do it, they were going to do it? Then what's the point of passing these laws? What the hell with it? No one's going to follow them. Was, was there any piece of you that felt like the deterioration of the bodies would shed light on the fact that they were... No. That it would create this sort of... They would deteriorate me. Christ. Raymond Fuel Pilots. What do you need? Yes. All right, let me know. Wait on, you need help. Like, what about you? I mean, does this line of work make you think about, like, how, how you want to be treated, you know, when you pass on? I don't know. I, I think, yeah. I, I like the idea to, to put you in a crypt or a tomb. Pyramid. Pyramid, as I said, Bob wants a pyramid. <laughs> I can't say, I didn't care. Whatever you do with us. Hey, what do you want done with you personally? Who knows? Your family decides they want something else, you let them do it. Who cares? Do you feel like you're successful? Financially, uh, as a millionaire or something? No. Because I spent most of it, kids and so forth, whatever I had to do. As a person, I think I've done about as much as I could do. My only question would be sometimes you say, did I do enough? Well, I keep trying anyway. But at least I'm in there doing something. If we all did one good thing a day, what a great place it'd be. 
pretty simple. Yeah. Take a breather. We'll get you. What do you guys want? Some Chinese food? That's it for Love and Radio. This episode featured the voices of Pat Kelly. Probably will. And you take it, too. Bob Miller. The old timers, we never used gloves or anything else. Lone Wolf Smith. What do you do in there? Frankie Olmo. I just never pictured myself helping it this way. Edgardo Franceschi. People say, oh, you know, that job must be, like, very sad, depressing. It's like, uh... Stacy Hines. Like I said to them, if I die, <laughs> do not let any other funeral home take me. You know what I mean? Reporter Brad Patrician. The problem is severe enough that there are hospitals that have bodies sitting in their morgues for over a year. And of course, Peter Steffen. When a Martian crashes at Worcester Airport, they'll call us for him too. I'm very sorry to have to tell you that Peter died in March of 2022 at the age of 85. Calling Hours was produced by Stephen Jackson with Phil Domhofsky and featured music by Ernest Hood, Anatolian Weapons, Scott Gilmore, Joseph Shabison, and Visible Cloaks with Yoshio Ojima and Satsuki Shibano. For a complete list of all the music we feature, please visit our website, loveandradio.org. Love and Radio is an independent project and a labor of love and radio and made possible thanks to our supporters on Patreon with extra super special thanks to Ali Mothra Perry, Andrew Simmons, Casey Anderson, Dan Palmino, Jacqueline Leak, Jason V, Sam Huffman, Sandra Schroeder, and Edging Candy Duft. If you want to pitch in, consider becoming a member yourself by going to loveandradio.org slash member. And don't forget, our first listening party and season 10 preview is happening on December 3rd. Visit our Patreon page for more details. Again, that's loveandradio.org slash member. I'm Nicholas Sardine, Punch Punch Vanderkolk. Thanks for listening. It's just a horror film. Well, the monster's made up out of human ashes, supposedly. And he goes around, he's about seven, eight feet tall. He goes around grabbing people and basically incinerating them. That's what it's all about. And the monster's an original. and nobody else like him. The mummy goes around strangling people. Other these monsters go around murdering people, whatever they do, eating people, cutting them up. What can you make up for a monster? What's better a monster made out of human ass goes around burning people alive? I took one of those protective plastic suits, personal protective equipment, as they call it. Put an adhesive and I sprayed cream of wheat on it to give her a sort of a, a powder effect. On top of that, more adhesive and I put oatmeal on it so it looks like bone chips. How did this come about? Well, I've always liked that. I think I've been a, a movie freak for a long time. I've seen some horror movies which really didn't measure up. And I thought this would. Interesting uh, movie. It should do pretty well. It should do pretty well. I think anything you see that mentions anything about funerals, cemetery, the grave, crematory, it's going to draw people in. It's something sinister about this business, which they shouldn't be, but people are basically afraid of it. Anything you apply to this business, usually horror movie, uh, documentary, 
it sells. Yeah. Because of the curiosity factor. Sure, yeah. And that's it. Yeah. 